Thank you for listening to the Pentecostals of Bossier City Sermon Podcast. For more information, including our live webcast schedules, please visit www.pobc.cc. Um, this church, because you followed the heart and the lead and the vision of your pastor, you've had the opportunity to literally impact around the world. Thank you for building Bible schools. Thank you for your investment in missions. Thank you for following the leadership of my friend, Brother Dean. He and his wife are just some of the greatest people on God's green earth. They really are. And the man's still got the singing thing down. And she likes that. She was taking video of him behind me. I saw her. She kind of likes him, you know. They're my friends, and I sure love them. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. The Bible, in that late first century book, written by an anonymous author, we're not sure exactly who that is. The writer says, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. It is both sure and steadfast, and it entereth into that within the veil. Wasn't planning on preaching this message this morning, but I get up early, and thankfully you have a 24-hour Walmart, which is the greatest supplier of sermon illustrations in the world, so I'm okay. The writer tells us that our hope in Christ is like an anchor for the soul. The anchor was a popular symbol in the early church. There's at least 66 pictures of anchors If you go to the city of Rome and you go in the catacombs under the city, you'll find carved in the stone at least 66 pictures of anchors. It was used on tombstones. It was used on epitaphs as an indication that the deceased person had died in Christ. And that anchor was also a symbol of hope. Thank you. It was a symbol of hope to those that were oppressed in that day. Now, I don't need to talk to Louisiana folks about what you do with an anchor. You know. An anchor for a boat provides stability and it provides safety. It doesn't matter whether the water's calm or whether the water's dangerous. It really doesn't matter. The anchor serves the same function. It holds the ship securely in one place. If you get in a storm... When the waters are tempestuous and the winds are tumultuous and everything's going crazy, that anchor prevents the ship from being tossed about by the storm itself. It doesn't do that because the anchor's tethered to the water. It does that because the anchor is tethered to the bottom. And even in calm weather and in calm waters, the anchor keeps that ship from drifting away accidentally. The writer of Hebrews used that as an illustration, but he wasn't talking about any ordinary anchor. He was talking about a spiritual anchor that we have. And our anchor isn't anchored down. It's actually anchored in heaven. Our anchor's actually anchored up. Our anchor isn't actually anchored to keep us standing still. It's anchored to keep us moving toward heaven. It is anchored within the veil. I came here this morning to tell you that the church 
has an anchor. Hebrews says the anchor is sure. That means it can't break. And it's steadfast. That means it can't ever slip. No earthly anchor can give that kind of security. And the writer of Hebrews also says it's anchored within the veil. Now in the Old Testament there was a veil and a high priest. And the high priest went in behind the veil once a year. Our high priest has gone in behind a heavenly veil. But that Old Testament high priest, he wasn't a forerunner. You know why? Because nobody could follow him in there. Nobody could ever go behind the veil with the high priest. But our New Testament high priest, he's anchored our hope within the veil of heaven. He's gone inside the veil and he's saying, because I went there, I'm the forerunner. You can get there. You can go there. You have a hope beyond this earth. Now, here's what I want to tell you this morning. We have an anchor. The church has an anchor. You personally have an anchor if you're a child of God. And you got to remember this because you would never dream that the church is victorious if you read much in the media today. You would never dream that the church was the most important institution on this planet if you paid attention to what Hollywood is saying. And here's how it looks sometimes. It looks like the church or maybe you or your family, it looks like we're being pushed back or pushed around or pushed aside or pushed down. But what the world cannot see is underneath all of that, there's an anchor that's... It looks like we're being pushed down. It looks like we're being pushed aside. But what the world can't see is there's a tether rope on this church. We're not tied to the stock market. We're not tied to Washington or Hollywood or Nashville. We're tied to heaven. There's an anchor for the church of the living God. (laughs) And the pull of the anchor is greater than the push of the world. (laughs) I said the pull of the anchor is greater than the push of the world. Look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And Paul writes this. He said, we're troubled on every side. If you looked at us, you would think that we had no hope. We're troubled on every side, but we're not distressed about it. We are perplexed. There's a lot of perplexing things in the world today. We're perplexed, but you know what? We're not in despair. We are not going to throw up our hands because there are perplexing things in our culture. We are persecuted, but here's what we know even when we're persecuted. We are not forsaken, and we are even cast down sometimes. Sometimes it feels like we trip over our own feet, fall flat on our face, and look up to touch bottom. But here's what Paul said. Even when we're cast down, we are not destroyed. See, when we get cast down, what we need to do is just feel around until we get a hold of that rope one more time because you are tied to an eternal hope that is anchored in heaven. It doesn't matter what you're going through this week. You've got an anchor tied to your soul that's pulling you toward your eternal destiny. It might look like you had the worst week from hell that you could ever imagine, but hell doesn't realize there's an invisible anchor. It's tied around your spirit. And Paul said this, he said, um, we always bear about in the body 
the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. What are you saying, Paul? Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that Jesus was pushed around too. Jesus was pushed aside too. Jesus was put down and abused and misused too. But the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, look at this, Hebrews chapter 12, we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't enjoy the cross, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and he is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus didn't enjoy the cross. You'd be insane to say something like that. But Jesus endured it. Why did he endure it? Because he was tied to something that was far greater than that one day in ancient Jerusalem. He is our example. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith. And there's greater power in the pull of heaven than there is in the push from the world around you. You want to believe it. We, uh, we've had the privilege of being in Israel a few times and always, man, oh man, it's, it's, it's so amazing. It's almost like going home for apostolics. Israel's ground zero for all of us, whether we've ever been there or not. And um, most of the times that I've gone, I've gone with Brother Stone King's groups and that's an experience in itself. Um, we, we mess up stuff, apostolics, when we get around people that, that don't know what we're about. Uh, we had no idea. We were in the uh, upper room, one of those tours. Um, the upper room is, is like, that's ground zero for us. And uh, we had no idea. There was some guy in the upper room that day, and he was, um, he was doing a teaching series. He was from a big church here in America, and uh, he had a whole little group. He took a, a, a self-contained audience with him, and and they would go to different sites and he would sit them all down and he would teach them. And they were filming this series to use on their TV program that their church had, I guess. And uh, we didn't know he was there. We didn't know who they were. Uh, everybody's got a camera. We didn't notice that it was some kind of special camera. He was in one corner of the upper room when we went in. What else we didn't realize is that he was teaching his little group that, you know, the day of speaking in tongues is over. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. That just happened in the beginning at, uh, in Acts chapter 2. And it's been hundreds of years since anybody uh, ever has spoken in tongues. That's not for today. Uh, that ceased with the apostles. That died out in the first century. And, and so he was explaining that to all his people. We had no idea. We were totally innocent. At that precise moment when he was just getting to the punchline, we didn't know. In the other corner, Brother Stone King said, lift your hands and worship Jesus. It was instant Christian chaos, Pentecostal pandemonium. Some lady just overcome by the Holy Ghost, shouting in tongues, stumbled right into that guy's camera shot and ruined his video. You think he wasn't mad? Oh, he was burning up. We didn't know. We were in Israel one year. We always go to the garden tomb. And we sit in that beautiful garden and look at that tomb. And I believe that's the spot. There's a lot of evidence that it is. They've got a little wooden door there now and a little sign that says, He is not here. He is risen. And we always do communion there. And uh, we were doing communion in uh, this, uh, this one particular year. 
And the Lord spoke to us uh, with uh, tongues and interpretation. And here's what Jesus said to us as we looked at the garden tomb. He said, through tongues and interpretation, the agony that I felt in this place is not worthy to be compared to the glory that I feel in this place as my people worship me. Let me tell you why Jesus got through that weekend, why Jesus got through that crucifixion, how Jesus got through Calvary. He looked far beyond. He could see something in the distance. He could see some people in Bossier worshiping him and giving glory to his name. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. He said, this is agony right now, but there's a purpose far beyond the agony. This is terrible right now, but there's a purpose far beyond that. And Paul said, Jesus is our example. We look to him. If he got through it, we can get through it because he is in us. Look at this scripture in Hebrews. It says, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. Consider him. Think about Jesus. He endured the contradiction of sinners, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Now, what in the world is that contradiction? The contradiction is simply this, brothers and sisters. Sometimes it looks like the world is winning. Sometimes it looks like the devil is in charge. Sometimes it looks like hell has just played the trump card. That's the contradiction. It looks like that, but it's not like that. It looks like hell has been victorious. But see, Jesus' crucifixion actually was the greatest ambush in human history. The devil thought he had won, but when Jesus said it is finished, it wasn't over for Jesus. It was over for the devil's plan. That's what was over. The Bible tells us in the writing of Paul, if the devil had even suspected the wisdom of God at work, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's the contradiction. It looks like the world is winning. Maybe it looks like hell is winning in your life or in your family, in your situation. You see, it's incredibly challenging to recognize the contradiction when you're face to face with your circumstances. It's difficult to believe for your healing when you're still dealing with your symptoms this morning. It's tough to trust God for revival when recently you've had nothing but losses and setbacks. It's hard to have faith for future victories when you're still negotiating the wounds of some past battles. It's emotionally stressful to try to help other people and other families through their little problems while you're trying to cope with major carnage and devastation in your own family. Let me tell you something. For all of you folks that your family's all with you in church this morning, we're so happy for you. But can I tell you on behalf of several others in this room, it's spiritually draining to watch day after day for your prodigal to come back home when they told you just last week they're never going back to church again. That's hard. But in the middle of hell's opposition and the devil's boast, I came here this morning to tell you that you have an anchor. 
You have an anchor. It may look like you're being pushed back and pushed down and pushed around, but let me tell you something. The heaven has tied you to an eternal promise and it doesn't matter how bad the devil pushed you this week. You just need to get a hold of one thing this morning. I've got an anchor. I've got a hope. I've got a promise. I've got a destiny. It doesn't matter what it looks like, feels like, talks like, or sounds like. I have an anchor. My goodness. I know the storm is rough. I know the waves are battering against your little boat. I got it that the wind is just pushing you and you feel like you're totally off track. But in the middle of a storm, there is an anchor and there is greater power in the pull from heaven than there is in the push from hell. Every single day of your week, some of you, you precious parents, you face crushing disappointments in your lives. Maybe friends have failed you or brethren have maligned you or the devil's attacked you or sickness has sidelined you. Sometimes if you're brutally honest, you might even dare to feel like God has forsaken you. You look around. It seems like other people just seem to have an easier life than you. Their home is blessed with peace and you have to go home today to a home that's filled with conflict. Their kids are saved and involved in church and singing in the choir. Your kids are far from God. They're blessed with good health, and today you're battling sickness. They seem to be God's favorite, and you feel like an unknown. And sometimes you just feel like your dream has died. And that brings me to this young man in the opening pages of the Bible. His name was Joseph, and he had the grandest personal dreams of anybody in the Old Testament. God revealed to Joseph when he was just a kid, 14 or 15, that his brothers, the forefathers of the tribes of Israel, his brothers would someday bow down to him. But the minute he told that dream, he began to be persecuted for it. And like almost every character in your Bible, the road to Joseph's dream, it was pretty long and pretty rough. Look at this, Genesis 37. And when His brothers saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them. His own brothers conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, Behold, smug, sarcastic, arrogant. Behold, the dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, let's kill him. Let's cast him into a pit. And we'll say, some evil beast has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. You say, well, that's no problem. Joseph's going to go in the pit and he's going to go to Egypt and then this is going to happen and that's going to happen and God's going to intervene. He didn't know that. For all Joseph knew at this moment, he has a far different perspective than you do. He didn't know the end of his story. For all he knew, his dreams had just been shattered forever by the cruel actions of his brother. For all Joseph knew, he was now going to live and die as a slave. All that young boy knew when his body hit the bottom of that pit, all he knew was that his brothers hated him so much that they pushed him into a pit. What he did not know at that moment was that while his brothers were pushing, God was pulling. (laughs) 
You think the devil is pushing you? You think the devil has wrecked the dream that God gave you? You think the devil has messed it up so bad you can never recover? See, what you don't see right now is that while the devil's been pushing you brutally and mercilessly, God has been pulling you and there's greater power in the pull than there is in the push. Psalm 105, the psalmist under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he gives us stuff that that even the book of Genesis doesn't tell us. Look at this. God sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters. We're not told that in Genesis. He was chained up like an animal. He was laid in iron until the time that his word came. The word of the Lord tried him. He was laid in iron. There's a a weird Hebrew word, a a unique word there. And it literally means that iron entered into his soul. Yes, he was chained up in iron shackles, but it was like iron got inside his soul. You say, that's a weird expression. Not when you think about our expression. The heavens were like brass. I tried to pray. I tried to worship. I tried to break through, but it just felt like the heavens were brass. That's exactly what that young boy, 14 or 15 years old, felt when he hit the bottom of that pit. For all he knew, his life was over. For all he knew, he was going to die a slave. All he knew at that moment was that his brothers hated him so much that they pushed him into that pit. Hundreds of years later, a young man named Stephen will stand in front of a crowd and he'll preach and he'll talk about Joseph. And Stephen does this unique thing in his sermon, which is the only sermon he ever got to preach and it's also the longest sermon in the book of Acts. Stephen does this unique thing. He talks about the first time and the second time. The first time you see Moses, here he is. The second time you see him, this is what's happening. When he does that about Joseph, it's magnificent. Stephen basically says the first time you see Joseph, he's being pushed into a pit. He's being sold for pieces of silver. He's being betrayed by his own brothers. That's the first time you see him in the book of Genesis. But the second time you see him, he's seated on the throne of Egypt. Everybody that wants to buy food to survive has to come in and bow before him. And he's got a name that Pharaoh has given him. And every every, uh, person... In Egypt has to pledge allegiance to that name to even live. Joseph becomes the most beautiful picture of Jesus. The first time, you see, Pharaoh gave Joseph this weird Egyptian name, Zapanath Panea. If you're expecting, have at it, you're welcome. Zapanath Panea. You know what that means? The early church father Jerome said that term means the savior of the world because that's what Joseph did. He saved the then known world. So to get this, here's what Stephen said. The first time you see Joseph, he's being sold for silver and betrayed. He's on his way down. But the second time you see him, he's seated on the throne. He has a name that is above every other name. And before him, every knee must bow and every tongue must confess. And if they do, they can live. Do you know who that's a picture of? Oh, that's a picture of this Jesus we've been worshiping this morning. That kid, he thought his life was over. He didn't know that God was pulling him into a destiny and that he was going to end up being the most beautiful picture of Jesus in the whole Bible. But he didn't know that. Here's what you need to know, though. While Joseph's brothers were selling him, 
God was sending him. While they were putting him down, God was setting him up. While they were deceiving him, God was leading him. And while they were lying about him, God was guiding him. They bound his feet, but that did not stop God from ordering his steps. Yeah, they were pushing, but while their hands were pushing, the hand of God was pulling. And there's greater power in the pull than there is in the push. Years later, after he was pushed into that pit and prison, after he spent most of his young life as a slave, after being falsely accused and terribly misused, and after being long forgotten by his deceitful brothers, there comes this moment when Joseph is pulled out of that Egyptian prison and brought to the courtroom of Pharaoh. And then, after the famine begins and Joseph has helped Egypt prepare, there comes this day in Genesis 45, when his brothers come into his throne room. They don't know him, but he sure knows them. They don't recognize his face, but he sure recognizes their faces. And Joseph said to his brethren, they're scared to death. He holds their life in his little finger. He just makes a motion and they are dead. But Joseph said to his brethren, come near me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother. You sold me into Egypt, but don't be grieved. Don't be angry with yourself that you sold me hither. Don't be angry that you misused me and you abused me. Watch this. For God did send me before you to preserve life. You sold me, but God was sending me so I can forgive you because I never get off track. It looked like you pushed me way over here. It looked like you knocked me down here. It looked like you pushed me aside over here, but not one time did God ever let go of me and there's greater power in the pull than there is in the push. (laughs) Eventually, Joseph's dad dies and then his brothers, they really think we're majorly in trouble now. And so they come and ask for an audience with Joseph. And one more time, he assures them, Genesis 50, you don't have to worry. I know you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. What are you saying, Joseph? I'm saying you pushed me, but God was pulling me. I wish I could get it in somebody's spirit this morning. I don't care who it is that persecutes you. I don't care who it is that hates your God and hates your church and hates your life that you try to live for God. I don't care who it is that's against you. I know this, that there is greater power in the pull from heaven than there is in a push from anywhere else. See, when the hand of God is on your life, brother and sister, you have an anchor. People may push you down. People may hold you back. But the pull is greater than the push. The devil may try to push you off track with trials and temptations. But the pull is greater than the push. Sometimes your own faults and your own failures will conspire against you and make you a pushover temporarily for sin and stupidity. But when you have fallen flat on your face and when you feel like there's darkness all around you, what you need to do 
is you just need to feel around for a minute until somewhere in the dark of your night you feel something familiar and you just get a hold of it. And as soon as you start tugging on it, God's pull is right there. That's the privilege of repentance. I don't care what you did. If you're willing to say, God, I'm sorry. God, forgive me. God can instantly put you back on track because the pull of heaven is greater than the push of hell. I don't care if your heart is hurting and your dreams are shattered and your friends have failed you and you feel all alone. I don't care if defeat haunts you every day and discouragement stalks your dreams every night. You just remember one thing. I have an anchor. The church has an anchor. It only looks like I'm defeated. I'm really a victor. I'm more than a conqueror in Christ. Micah probably said it best, that little prophet He said in seven and eight, rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. Even if I do fall, you know what I'm doing? I'm not laying there on my back crying. I'm not gonna sit there and go into depression. Even if I do fall, I'm getting back up. I will arise. And it may look like I'm in darkness right now, but even in darkness, the Lord is gonna be a light unto me. Devil, you may have put me here, but you're not keeping me here. Devil, you may have knocked me down, but I'm not staying down. God has a plan for you, brothers and sisters. And the pull is stronger than the push. Some of you sweet mothers and grandmas in here, you've borne the brunt of spiritual opposition and the burden of physical exhaustion. You've tried valiantly to balance your family and and your your ministry, your volunteering in the church here that you love. And while you've been working, while you've been praying and praising, while you've been faithful, you feel like you've lost the most critical battle of your life because you watched your own son or daughter disconnect from the very church you've given your life to. Ladies, I have a word for you this morning. Since Genesis 3.15, the Bible tells us, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Since Genesis 3.15, there has been enmity. There has been all-out war between the serpent and the woman, between the devil and godly women everywhere. That is the oldest battle in the Bible. Now the curse of Genesis 3.16 says the woman would forever have pain in childbearing. But the blessing of 1 Timothy 2.15 says that the woman would be saved in childbearing because it was a woman that gave birth to the Messiah. But not only that, it's also because every time a godly mother or grandmother raises a child to serve the Lord, the curse on this planet is reversed one life at a time. And so the devil fears godly women. The devil trembles at the prayers of a godly mother. The devil has panic attacks when a godly little grandma who's frail in her body and weak in her voice, when she starts whispering the name of Jesus, hell goes into emergency mode. The devil hates and fears godly women. 
Her name was Jochebed. Her baby boy was born at a time when the Jews had been enslaved by Egypt for over 400 years. And finally, the decree came from Pharaoh that every Jewish baby boy should be killed by being cast into the Nile River. But what the devil meant for evil, God meant for good. When Jochebed's baby boy was three months old, when she couldn't hide him any longer, she made a little ark of bulrushes and she hid him in the Nile River by the shore. And she instructed his sister, his older sister Miriam, to keep watch. And sure enough, the daughter of Pharaoh came to the river to wash with her servants and she saw that little ark. And when she opened it, right on cue, the baby began to cry. And when that little baby boy began to cry, right on cue, compassion hit the heart of that Egyptian princess. And instead of killing him, she just welled up with compassion for him. And then right on cue, big sister Miriam steps out of hiding and she said, hey, would you like a Hebrew nurse to raise this Hebrew baby? And that's how Jochebed came to raise her own son. She was given Moses back to raise. But look at this, Exodus 2. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, take this child away and nurse it for me and I will give thee thy wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, and she said, It's because I drew him out of the water. That's what Moses' name means. See, it wasn't Jochebed, his mother. It was Pharaoh's daughter who gave Moses his name. It means drawn out or pulled out or rescued. Here's what I got to get every mom to understand today. That little baby boy in the oldest book, the, 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 one of the oldest books in your Bible, the book of Exodus. Here's what you got to understand. Egypt named him, but it was his mama who had nursed him. It's such an amazing story that the writer of Hebrews, hundreds of years later, he points to Moses as an example of how faith in Christ pulls us and pulls our children away from the culture that surrounds us. Look at this, Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, he was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. They were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, he refused to be uh, called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. Here's what you've got to understand. Egypt named him but his mother nursed him and that's why after a little while Moses eventually chose God's purpose over Pharaoh's palace because nursing trumps naming every single time. That little mama in that little slave quarters who had rocked that little baby boy and prayed over him and she taught him the little songs of the Hebrews and she taught him, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. She taught him all those principles and eventually nursing trumped naming. It didn't look that way at first. Moses was born a Hebrew, but that heritage appeared to be lost for many years. And you gotta wonder, How could a few short months 
of being taught by his poor pauper slave mother ever hoped to compete with many years of being raised by the wealthy daughter of Pharaoh. But somehow, when Moses came to maturity, that early, listen to me, that early investment of truth prevailed over the later attraction of the world. Egypt and all of her allures were powerful, but eventually nursing rights trumped naming rights. I speak to a mom or a grandma here today. When your baby was born, you dedicated your children to the Lord. You prayed over them. You taught them truth. You did everything you possibly could do to train them to love God and love his church. But right now it seems like the world has kidnapped your baby, brainwashed them, renamed them. And it's pretty bad out there. We can be honest. It's in church. We can be honest. Never before has Egypt fought so hard to name our children. They want to name them agnostic and alcoholic and apathetic. They want to name them atheist, they want to name them addict, they want to name them abuser, they want to name them apostate. The world has a thousand names for your kids. And you look around and you think the world has won. And you think the devil has tied them up in so many knots of sin that it will never change. But just the second you start to feel like it's hopeless, I want you to remember one thing. Every moment you nursed that baby, every moment you brought that child to Sunday school, every moment you sat them on a pew in prayer meeting and they weren't paying much attention, they were playing with a little truck, but you were praying in Jesus' name over their life. Here's what I want you to realize. Every moment you were praying over them, you were tying a rope of prayer. You were tying a rope of prophetic destiny. You were tying that around their spirit. And right now, although you can't see it, there is an anchor tied to their spirit. There's an anchor tied to their destiny. You put it there by your prayer. You put it there by your faithfulness. You put it there by your intercession. And though the devil, it looks like he's got them tied up in sin. There's a rope that ties them tighter than the chains of sin. There's an anchor that you tied to those kids. I wish I could get somebody to lift up your hands. I wish I could get somebody to just say, Jesus, I'm believing that. Jesus, I'm believing that. Jesus, I'm believing that. Now this is Bozier. I need you to lift up a Bozier praise for a minute. I need you to lift up a Bozier worship for a minute. I need you to lift up some intercession to the Lord. There are some godly intercessors in this room. When they start to pray, the devil goes to running. You're here. You don't need to take the threats of the devil. You've tied an anchor rope around your kids. Now, protocol would demand I should let you sit down. Actually, we've been standing for a minute, but I'm not going to because the Holy Ghost is here. I want you to get... This would look dumb if you did it in the physical, so don't do it in the physical, do it in the spiritual. I need you to clench up your spiritual fist and I need you to lift up your hands and just say, devil, I am not going down without a fight. I have a right to fight over my kids. I have a right to fight for my grandkids. I have a right to fight for my family. I have a right to fight for that backslidden spouse. I have a right. I've been tying an anchor of destiny around them. 
If you're filled with the Holy Ghost, I wish you'd pray in the Holy Ghost for a moment. You've been too faithful and God is too good. You don't have to worry about it. You keep on praying because every prayer you pray, you're tying that rope around them. Every prayer that you pray, you're anchoring them to their destiny. Oh, protocol demands that we should go on with a sermon, but I'm not really interested in protocol right now. I need an intercessor to lift up your prayer, lift up your voice. Don't be embarrassed. Don't let it kind of set silent because of all of us. We don't mind. This is an apostolic church. Come on, mom. Come on, grandma. So I'm so sorry. Would you lift somebody else's hand with your hand right now? Grab somebody and just, just lift their hand with your hand. Let's turn this into a chorus, a choir of intercessors right now. Lift up your voice and pray. Let me tell you something else. If you're far from God this morning, there's a godly mama or a godly grandma that's been praying for you. But not only that, this church has been praying for you. You can't see it yet. You think the devil has knocked you down and it's all over. But what you can't see is there's prayer tied around your spirit. And if you just feel around, you can feel the pull of destiny in this room today. I'm sorry to push you. I know it's a Sunday morning, but, but we're right there. We're right there. One more time. Would you push through that ceiling that the devil is trying to put on your prayer? I know it looks bad. It looked bad for Jesus. I know it looks like it's over. It looked like it was over for Jesus and Joseph and Moses. But the pull is greater than the push. I'm opening this altar right now for two kinds of people. 
I'm opening number one for somebody. There's a backslider in your family and you've been praying and you are so discouraged. You've been praying and you are so tired. You've been praying and you just don't know what else you can do. I came here this morning to tell you there's an anchor rope tied around them. Every prayer you've prayed hasn't been wasted. Every prayer you've prayed has not gone just up in smoke. Every prayer you prayed has been tying a rope of destiny around them. But I'm opening this altar for somebody else. If the devil has just been tormenting you and giving you grief and putting all kinds of issues in your life and in your family, I open this altar for you right now. If you would just feel around for a moment, your hand, your spirit, your heart is going to run into something. There's an anchor rope tied to you today. All you need to do is get a hold of it and pull yourself to your feet. Some of you that have a backslider in your family, I want you to just reach up here and grab a hold of this rope. Would you do that? And just pray. Just grab a hold of this rope and just pray. God, I'm hanging on to it. I'm hanging on to my promise. I'm hanging on to your word. I'm hanging on to your power. I'm hanging on to the destiny that you talked to me about for my kids. Look at that. Look at that. In your face, devil, we haven't given up. In your face, devil, we haven't stopped praying. You may have knocked us down, but Jesus is going to lift us up. All the rest of you folks, if you join us, if you can, if you've got physical strength, we sure could use your prayer around this altar. If you just stand and come forward, in just a minute, we're all gonna pray together as church family. Jesus is here right now. Jesus is here right now. Oh my goodness. So Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, please. Guys at the back, untie that rope. Would you bring it down here? Pastor wants to spread it across this altar. Oh, don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. Today's your day to stand back up because while you thought the devil had knocked you down for good, he was pushing you, but God has been pulling you. Oh my goodness. There's such a powerful witness of the Holy Ghost in this room right now. Yes, 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 yes. Pastor's got that rope right there. Can we take this end of the rope? Let's walk it right to the other end of the altar. We got space, we got time. And as many of you as get reach out, just get a hold of that. 
There's nothing magic about it or special about it. It's an old piece of rope from Walmart. But I'll tell you what is special in this room. There is a pull from heaven in this room right now. There's a pull from heaven in this room right now. So If you can't reach it, put your hand forward and put your hand on somebody that's got a hold of it right now. Now this is Bozier. This is a praying, missions-minded church. But the devil will talk to you and say, well, that's just for Brother Dean's family. That's just for some guest speaker's family. That's just for somebody else's family. That's not true at all. There's a rope, there's an anchor tied to your spirit this morning. Could I get you to lift up your voice like a trumpet and pray in the Holy Ghost? Something is moving and shaking and changing and loosing. Yes, yes. My boy is coming back. My girl is coming back. My grandkids are going to serve God. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Sorry, I don't want to mess you up here, but guys at the back, if you could go way down to the very last scripture, I think it's like third picture from the end. Can I just give you this? And we're going to pray one more time. Here's our challenge. Because these are our loved ones, it hits our hearts so hard and so heavy that 
we just feel like coming to the altar and crying. There's nothing wrong with crying. There's nothing wrong with tears. But every once in a while, you just got to get mad at the devil. And you got to push back. You, you got to fight. Look, look, look at this. Jeremiah 23, verse 7. Look, look, look at this. Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord. They shall no more say, the Lord liveth, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, now think about that. That was their great salvation miracle. That was when they were saved out of Egypt by blood, water, and spirit. Blood on the doorpost, going through the water of the Red Sea, and the pillar of cloud and fire. They were literally saved. That's our Old Testament picture of New Testament, of New Testament, new birth. That's what that is. But God spoke to Jeremiah after Israel had backslidden and messed around and walked away. And God said, Jeremiah, there's coming a day when they're not going to say that anymore. Here's what they're going to say. Instead of that, they're going to say, the Lord lives, which brought up and led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country. Everywhere I had driven them, everywhere they were scattered. What's Jeremiah saying? He's saying there's coming a day when people are going to worship God more for your restoration miracle than your salvation miracle. Oh, oh my goodness. See, there's, I, 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 this feels like home to me. I love this place and this church, all you great people. But here's what I know. There are some kids that grew up on these pews and there are some kids that aren't serving God today. And you remember their salvation miracle. They got the Holy Ghost when they were seven. They got baptized when they were six and a half. They grew up in the youth group, but they're gone today. Here's what Jeremiah's word means to me. It's coming a day when you talk about their salvation miracle and you feel like, oh, that's gone forever. But God's going to give them such a restoration that people aren't even going to remember the cute little boy on the Sunday school pew. They're going to remember that 25-year-old man who came back and his restoration was greater than his initial salvation. That's what they're going to remember. Would you double up your fists in the spirit? Would you just wipe your tears for a minute? We'll cry later. Right now, I'd like you to get mad at the devil and say in the name of Jesus, I'm getting up. In the name of Jesus, I'm turning around. In the name of Jesus, my kids are coming home. You gotta push, you gotta push. I refuse to take no for an answer. I refuse to take no for an answer. I brought them up. I nurtured them. I nurtured them. They are coming back. Yes, yes. Yes. Last time I'll mess with you. Thank you for receiving the word of the Lord this morning. We're used to praying beside each other. I want you to turn to somebody, especially if they're family. 
I want you to lay your hand on them. I want you to pray for them, not beside them, not just with them. I want you to lay your hand on their head, preferably, and pray for them. Would you turn to somebody from side to side in this altar? Would you lay your hand on them? Now, don't just pray some little weepy prayer. I want you to pray a prayer of authority. God, I'm praying that the blessing of God falls in their family and their kids come home. God, I'm praying that the pull from heaven gets a hold of their grandchildren and their grandkids come home. <clears throat> oh, that's powerful, Bozier. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> 